Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that all of you are able to join us today in our in-person gathering. And those of you who are online, so thankful that you are inviting us into your homes. So glad to be there with you. Want to invite you to come join us live soon, whenever you feel comfortable. We would love to have you here. Those of you in the Cross Point Center at 11 o'clock, let me give a shout out to you in our mask-only service. Thank you for your faithful participation there. For those of you who may be a first or second time guest, maybe this first time you've ever seen me, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here at Scotts Hill, where I've been having such a joy of doing this for almost 27 years now. Well, it's been a great time, great time together for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I notice about us as human beings is we have all kind of uniquenesses about our lives. And one of the things that's unique about us is that we can take the most simple thing and make them complicated, can't we? We can take simple things of life and we can so complicate them that we remove the joy or even the possibility of achieving those things. Now, let me just say something. There's a difference between something that's complex and something that is complicated. You can take something complex and simplify it. But complication comes when you take something simple and you make it almost difficult to do. Now, we're good at this. We do this in all areas of our lives, don't we? Let me just give you a couple of illustrations of how we complicate things. Some of the most simple things. Some people have the knack of complicating the simple process of ordering food from a menu. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's real simple. It says what the item is. It says what the ingredients are. If you like them, you order that. But some people have a hard time doing that. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you are that person in this room or at home. My mother-in-law is a wonderful lady, and I remember that when my kids were little, we went to McDonald's together. Now, she is not a connoisseur of fast food restaurants. She doesn't even know how to order at a fast food restaurant. If she's not sitting down in a restaurant and somebody waiting on her, she doesn't know, really know what to do. So we went to McDonald's and she was standing at the counter. And if you you know my mother-in-law, you'll know what I'm talking about. She says, I don't know what to do. I say, well, number one is a Big Mac. Number two is quarter pounder with cheese. Number three is a cheeseburger. What would you like? So she tells the young man, I would like the number one, the Big Mac. But I don't want any special sauce or lettuce or pickles or onions. So he says, so ma'am, you want a cheeseburger? (laughs) No, I don't want a cheeseburger. I want a number one, the Big Mac, with no lettuce or pickles or onions or special sauce. He said, ma'am, why don't you just order the number three is a cheeseburger. I don't want a cheeseburger. I want a number one. And so the whole thing was complicated. I leaned over to her. I said, Ms. Gloria, you don't know, but at McDonald's, you can't have it your way. (laughs) She didn't know. So that was kind of a complicated thing. Some people make getting dressed in the morning complicated. Come on now. How many of you, you have no problem getting dressed in the morning? No problem. Raise your hand. You have no problem picking out your clothes. I can say that because my wife picks out mine, irons them, and lays them out. I never have a say in what I wear. 
I got up this morning, this was laid out. Now my wife, she will go through a number of outfits before she finds the right one. Sometimes she asks me, which one do you like? And whatever I pick, she picks the opposite. Now I think it's only fair one day that I should pick out her clothes, right? That'll never happen. What about, what about my favorite? Ordering coffee. It gets so complicated. You know, it used to be that there was a day and a time where ordering coffee was very simple. Before these specialty coffee, sh coffee shops, it was very simple. Black, cream, and sugar. That was it. Now you go to a coffee shop and you've got this menu. And it's all over the wall. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'll have the grande um, Colombian house brew with salted caramel flavoring and oat milk with a sprinkle of cinnamon on the top and some whipped cream. And the guy's looking at you and he only asks one question, what's your name? <laughs> he never writes the order down. He writes your name on the cup. You get it, you don't know what's in it, but it's $12. <laughs> Can I get an amen? And then when you get behind a person who can't make up their mind what they want in their coffee. and you're So we complicate the most simple things of life. It's just in us. We do it. And you know, we do that with so many different things in our lives. We can go on and on. The same can be said of God's word. The Jews were experts at complicating the simple truths of the word of God. God gives Moses 10 commandments, 10 commandments. He writes them down on a tablet. Moses gives it to the people, 10 simple commandments. And what do the religious people ultimately end up doing? They want to protect the 10 commandments. They want to protect it from every single angle. So the religious people come up with this fence that they build around the 10 commandments. They come up with 613 commandments around the 10 commandments. That's 61.3 commandments for each commandment that God gave. And they were trying to protect it. And it became so burdensome and so heavy that the simple thing became complicated. And you know, we can do the same thing with the gospel, can't we? Think of the simplicity of the gospel message. Jesus came to save sinners. Very simple. What's required in that? A person to recognize their own sinfulness. A person to recognize that Jesus is the only means of forgiveness and to receive him by faith. And a person is born again into the kingdom of God. So simple, but we can make things so difficult, can't we? Years ago, I went to a memorial service and there was a member of our church who had a family member who died. And so I go to this memorial service and it was being preached by a man whose brother is a very famous preacher in Baptist circles. And so he was preaching this memorial service and as he did, he spent more time talking about himself than the deceased person. But as he's preaching, he comes and he makes this statement. Here's the statement he makes. He says, if you're here today and you are only 99% sure that you're saved, you are 100% lost, and you need to get saved today. And I thought, oh, what? Are you kidding me? If you're 99% certain that you're saved, you're 100% lost? Not 
only was that terrible, pathetic exposition of God's word, but what he brought into question was the ability of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to transform people's thinking, to save them, and to keep them saved. You see, he spent his whole sermon trying to create a tension of doubt and fear. And if you feel that doubt and fear that he brought in that room, then you need to get saved again. And I thought how that devastated the hearing of so many people. Because every child of God at one time or another may walk through a struggle of doubts, may walk through a struggle of time of fear, And if you feel those things, are you saying that you've got to get saved again? And they complicate the gospel to such a place where it becomes a burden on us rather than a joy. Think of the the John the Baptist. He's in prison. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus said to him, tell John to look at my works. He had doubt but he was considered the greatest prophet by Jesus who ever lived. And then you find the apostle Paul was saying that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And what he's saying there is not that we earn our salvation or we do anything to get something out of it, but what we end up doing is we work alongside of God. The Holy Spirit begins to work in us the struggles and the doubts and the fears as we process the truth of the gospel. And here's my point. If we're not careful, we can take the simplicity of the message of Jesus Christ and so complicated that we end up enslaving people and they wonder, how can we ever live a Christian life? And if we're not careful, we put our list on people. We put our convictions on people. We put our interpretations on Scripture on people. And then we too become guilty of complicating the simple, joyful message of the gospel. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts 15 today. So take your Bibles, open to Acts 15. That is the entire theme of chapter 15 in the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to do something a little differently. We've been going through large chunks of Scripture, but today we're going to take and just walk right through verses 1 through 31. Right through that, and we're just going to unpack that because here's the problem in the, in the early church. There were Christians and people who converted to faith in Christ who were wanting to put on the gospel more than what is ever demanded. And there's the complication of the simplicity. Now, here's what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to unpack these verses. I don't particularly have any points this morning, so I guess you could say this is a rather pointless message. (laughs) But here's what we want to do. There are two questions that arise from this situation. And these two questions are asked and they're answered. And these two questions are absolutely necessary for us 2,000 years later. So we're going to ask the questions. We're going to answer them And we're going to make some practical application of how you and I are to walk in the simplicity of the gospel. And how do we protect that as a body? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Guide me as I teach. May your Holy Spirit give us insight and conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the disciples had been traveling. 
Paul and Barnabas had been set out by the church of Antioch in chapter 13 is where we last left them. And they've been traveling the countryside, preaching the gospel. They've made about a 500-mile journey, and they've circled back to Antioch, which was the key church in the New Testament at that time. Now, everywhere they went, they were confronted by Jews who rejected the message of the gospel. But there were some Jews who were converted to Christ who thought that it was necessary for Gentiles to become Jews first before they become Christians thus complicating the message of the gospel. And so Luke records what happens in chapter 15, which is often known as the Jerusalem Council that arises because of these two questions. Beginning in verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So this question has come up. They're sending them to Jerusalem. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now what's happened was these are Jews who have been converted to faith in Christ. And they see these Gentiles being converted to faith in Christ. And then what they come and say, but listen, if they're going to be true Christians, they have to adhere to the moral and to the ritual law. There were two laws that the Jews lived by. There was the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And they live according to the moral law. The real issue here is not the moral law, because when a person comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residency in that person, and that person for the first time is able to walk according to the moral law. It is through their relationship with Christ that there's a transformation that takes place, and their life starts to change. So the issue really wasn't the moral law. The issue was the ritual law. And the Jews were saying that, listen, if they become Christians, they've got to start adhering to the ritual law. What was the ritual law? Let me give it to you quickly. Circumcision was part of the ritual law. Paying attention to the dietary rules of Leviticus was a part of the ritual law. Paying attention to things such as festivals and celebration was a part of the ritual law. And so what we find there, they were wanting to impose on them all of the requirements of the ritual law. So what rose out of that was the first question. Is there anything we must add to what Christ has done for us on the cross? In other words, is there something else we must do? Is the work of Jesus on the cross enough to save a person or is there something else that believers must do? There is the question. So it's presented above all before all the apostles, and now they must answer this question. How do they answer it? Verses 6 through 19, we find the answer. And it begins with Peter. 
Look at verse six as we continue. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the what? Grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter stands up, he gives the first defense, and he says a couple of things. First of all, God has given it to me to speak to the Gentiles, and I've been going and doing that. And then he mentions two key components of salvation, grace and faith. Grace and faith, that every person is only saved by the grace of God. They can't do anything to earn it. And the thing that appropriates God's grace in a person's life is their faith in Jesus. Paul would later write about this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Least no man should boast. It's not by your works. It's by God's grace, and it's by faith. And by the way, both grace and faith are gifts from God. And that's the requirement of salvation. So Peter lays it right out. Then he gives exhibit one. Exhibit one is Cornelius. He talks about going to Cornelius' house. Remember in Acts chapter 10, he goes to see Cornelius. He preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his whole family get saved. The Holy Spirit descends upon them as a sign that these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. You know what Peter didn't do? Peter didn't do say, now Cornelius, it's almost heaven. It's West Caesarea. It's almost heaven. But now what you got to do is you got to take that ham that's in the oven and throw it out. Man, you got to take that bacon that's in your refrigerator and get rid of it. Man, you're going to have to get rid of that, that rare steak and start cooking it well done. And by the way, Cornelius, your family and all your friends and everybody around you, all the males, they got to get circumcised. He never said that. He never added a thing to what God did through grace and faith. And then exhibit two is this. Our own fathers were not able to keep the moral law. You're not able to keep the moral law. Here's what Peter understood. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, were not given to make us perfect. The Ten Commandments were given to show that we are imperfect. The Ten Commandments are given to show that we cannot keep the moral law. And Peter knew this. They knew this. Their whole life was a struggle to try to keep the moral law because they didn't have the capability of doing so. And you know what? Neither do you. And neither do I. Let me just give you a test. Let's take the Ten Commandments and let's see how well you do on the Ten Commandments. Okay? I want everybody to participate in this. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to raise your hand. Okay. Here's the first question. If you have ever told a lie, raise your hand. The only people who don't raise their hands are the people who are lying right now. Okay, if you ever told a lie, raise your hand. What's that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Raise your hand. What's that make you? A lying thief. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Raise your hand. 
You're a rebellious lying thief. (laughs) Have any of you ever wanted something that's not your own? Raise your hand. You're a covetous, rebellious, lying thief. Have you ever put something before God? Raise your hand. You're an idolatrous, covetous, rebellious, lying thief. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Raise your hand. You're blasphemous, idolatrous, rebellious, covetous, lying thief. I don't need to go any further, do I? None of us can stand to the moral law. Because the law only shows our imperfection. And so Peter makes this statement. And then in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He didn't say this. They're going to be saved like us. He said, we're going to be saved like them. Why? He destroys the argument that anything needs to be added. What happens as we continue to read? Here's what we discover. We discover in verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they give a speech and they say, wow, here's what God's doing. Then James, James is the half brother of Jesus. He's the pastor in the church in Jerusalem. He speaks up. Here's what he says. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Simon, which is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from uh, the people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Now he quotes, James quotes Amos and Jeremiah. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What is he saying? All the heavyweights of the church have agreed. We don't need to add a single thing to what Jesus has done on the cross. That question is answered. It is settled. And it needs to be settled for you and me. You know what happens in our own life sometimes? We want to add to the gospel. And we want to do that for other people. We want to give other people lists. You can do this, you can do this, you can't do this, you can do this, but you can't do that on Sundays. And we add to it. Or what we do is we give them our interpretations of how they should interpret the scripture or we give them our convictions about certain things. And if we're not careful, we begin to put on people burdens that are so heavy that the Lord Jesus has never even wanted us to have. And if we're not careful, we can make the simplicity of the gospel so complicated. Now, let me tell you, it can be complex but it shouldn't be complicated because of what Christ has done for us. We do not need to add. It is Jesus only. Now, that's not to say that we should not help fellow believers walk in a deeper relationship or we should not help people develop spiritual disciplines of their life. But it means they don't need my list And let me tell you, by the way, whenever we do those things, we don't have enough confidence in the gospel or in the Holy Spirit to lead those people to where they need to be by his power and his design. So now we come 
to a second question. Okay, once they settle it, that Jesus is enough, here's the second question that arises. If the Gentiles don't have to become Jews, how are we to fellowship with one another? We grew up as Jews. They grew up as Gentiles. We grew up with the moral law and the ritual law. They grew up with paganism and idolatry and sexual immorality and all kinds of other convictions. How are these two people to come to the table of fellowship together? Now, fellowship is very huge in the New Testament because it's through fellowship that they give the testimony of how God is changing people and making them one. It is through fellowship that they can demonstrate the love of God and that they are true disciples by their love for one another. How do we fellowship well together? And that's a big question for us today. Because let me tell you, we come from all different backgrounds. Remember last week we talked about the relational dynamics that change when we come to faith in Christ. The racial diversity that changes when we come to faith in Christ. And we are one Sometimes our convictions of different things can hinder our fellowship if we're not careful. Let me just give you an illustration. And I've used this illustration before. It's, any illustrations could be used, but I think this one is particularly pertinent to our church today and to our churches today. Let's say that you are a member of this church and you're invited to a fellowship with other members and you go to the home. And when you go to the home, you recognize that there's some people in there who are enjoying a glass of wine with their meal. Or somebody might be enjoying a beer. Or maybe there's a cocktail. Now, let me just say this. In Scripture, there is no prohibition against drinking, ever. There's no commandment that says you shall not drink. Now, there are warnings about drinking, and there is even wisdom and participating in that at times, but there are no prohibitions that said you cannot drink. The person who has a glass of wine says, I have the liberty to drink without sinning, and there is no evil stigma attached to it. A person can have a beer every now and then, or can have a cocktail, all in moderation and not abusing it. There's no sin in that. But let's say that you're having this fellowship, and an individual walks in, and they're uncomfortable. And you walk in and you see that there's a keg of beer. You would rather have a keg of Dr. Pepper. But the guy across from you has, um, has, has um, something different. You know, he's got some kind of maybe Dr. Thunder or something. <laughs> and you're thinking, how do I fit in here? What do you tend to do? Do you judge the people who are drinking maybe with liberty? And you begin to judge their Christian life? Or let's say that you're the person that recognizes there are two couples there that are uncomfortable with other people drinking. Do you judge them as being spiritually immature and not spiritually enlightened enough to have the freedom? Do you see what happens when we have different convictions when it comes to these issues? It can create division. And that's what was happening with the Jews and the Christians, the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and following, here's what James does. He has the answer, and it's an incredible answer. 
He says, verse 19 again, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What is James saying? He's saying this is what we need to do. Let's speak to the Gentiles and say, listen, these are the only things we would ask of you. We would say that you would stay away from idolatry, which was prevalent in their culture. That you would stay away from sexual immorality that was prevalent in their culture. Now, those two things will be taken care of by the moral law of the Holy Spirit working in them. But the only ritual thing he lays on the Gentiles is this. Don't eat meat from an animal that has been strangled. Why? Because Jews have been taught by the ritual law that you never strangle an animal and eat its meat because the blood remains in it. And you're not to eat the blood because it's the life of the animal. And they would cut the animal's throat, drain the blood, then eat the meat. The Gentiles didn't have any problem with that. And so what James is saying is this to each group. Each of you needs to die to rights and privileges of your own personal convictions. He's saying to the Gentiles, listen, because this is preached in every synagogue, in every country for generations, and Jews are offended by meat with the blood in it, just don't eat meat with blood in it when you're around your brothers and sisters who are Jews. In other words, lay down your rights and your privileges for this liberty to honor your brothers and sisters who are Jews. And he's saying to the Jews, you do not have to impose all of your rituals on the Gentiles. You die to your rights and your privileges in order to honor the other ones. You hear what he's painting here? It's a relationship of a covenant together. It's a relationship that says we must die to our own liberties and rights and privileges so that we can honor one another. Now, I want to tell you this. I don't have a problem with anyone drinking a glass of wine or anyone having a beer or someone having a cocktail. I don't have any evil stigmas attached to that. And though I have liberty to do so, I have learned a long time ago that it's better for me to lay down my rights so I never offend a brother or a sister. If you come to my house for dinner, we're going to have water. We're going to have tea. We're going to have LaCroix. We're going to have something like that. We ain't going to have Dr. Pepper. That's too expensive. So we're going to have those simple things. Why? Because I never want to offend anyone. Now, if my family comes with something different than that, then there's a freedom there because we're family together. But other than that, I will not participate in that. I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago. I have the freedom, I believe, in Christ to be able to drink a beer without there being an evil stigma attached to it. I do. 
But I'm in a public setting doing a, a wedding. Alcohol was being served. And I choose not to participate in that because I may offend a brother or a sister in Christ. Besides, I'm walking around and one of the songs that's playing is the song just says he had a Bible in one hand and a bottle in the other. And I thought that better not be me today. <laughs> but here's the picture. It's about... Being free to lay down your liberties to honor other people. I'll just give you another case in point. I drive a 2007 Chevy Silverado. 2007. I've had that thing since 2009. I paid cash for it. It's old. It's got 154,000 miles. I could buy a new one if I wanted to. But I chose not to. Why? Because sometimes even what I own can be a stumbling block for people. I mean, it's crazy, but it's true. And I don't want to be driving around in some expensive high-end automobile where everybody will look at the preacher and say, man, I must pay him pretty good over there. I don't want to be a stumbling block. So I, I enjoy my 2007 Chevy Silverado. It's paid for. Plus, I have personally customized it in the woods with pine trees and branches. <laughs> I like that. My radio in my truck hasn't worked in 11 years. I'm fine with that. I pray. The, the, the after factory tent that has been put on the windows is so decayed that it looks like I'm looking through scratch plexiglass. You don't want to borrow my truck. You can if you like. I don't care. But what I'm saying is this. I have the right to have a new one. But I even lay down those rights. Plus, listen, I don't need heated seats. I drive a mile to work. <laughs> I'm perfectly content in that. And some people may be pushing back right now saying, no, wait a minute, why do I have to lay down my rights to honor them? Why don't they lay down their rights to honor me? If that's your pushback, you have just demonstrated the selfishness of your own heart and your inability to understand the nature of the gospel and covenant relationship. Here's what Paul says in Romans 14. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I lay down my rights to honor you. We're not in a contractual re relationship. A contractual relationship says, I watch your life. And if you do anything wrong, I'm free to exit this relationship. That's a contract. A covenant relationship says this, I watch my life to honor you. And whatever I can do to honor you, regardless of the convictions that we have that may be different, my goal is to be the kind of community where Jesus gets all the glory. At Scott's Hill, we have a saying here. In the essentials, we have the unity. That's the non, that, those are the essentials, the, 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 the non-negotiables of Scripture. In the non-essentials, we give liberty. Those are convictions that don't necessarily come against the Word of God, but they're just simply personal convictions. Your conviction may be different than mine. It's not mine, but you know what? We have liberty in that. But in all things, we walk in charity. Now, I've got to finish the chapter. What happens next? Beginning at verse 22 and reading to the end. Here's what happens. 
Then it seemed good to the apostle and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Basarbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And here's a letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, at the Gent- who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. See how simple it is? So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Do you see what the disciples did here? Do you see what the apostles did? They went back to the simplicity of the gospel. Anytime life gets complicated, Go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Things are getting tough. Things are getting confusing. Go back to the simplicity of the gospel. One of the things you'll see in the book of Acts from beginning to end, you will see constantly the mentioning of the gospel. That it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power of God into salvation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us into a new relationship with the Father. It is the gospel that simplifies our lives. And I'm going to tell you this. From the moment that you become a Christian to your last breath as a Christian, you are always needing to be re-gospeled. We always need to go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Sometimes life can be so complicated. And what do we do? We put on ourselves requirements that the gospel has never demanded. Some of you are in some difficult relationships right now. And you're confused. And you're wondering if you're measuring up to what God has for you. And the answer for you is to go back to who you are in Christ. Some of you are struggling with depression and all this weight is upon you and you feel unworthy and you feel empty and you feel like you're missing something in the Christian life and the devil is coming along and he's speaking to your heart and your mind lies and Jesus is saying, no, 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 go back to the gospel. This is what I've done for you and here's who you are in me. Some of you have been divorced and you feel like I have just messed my life up. Some of you are going through the process of divorce right now and you're wondering how you're going to walk through this and the complications of all of those things are weighing heavy in your heart and your mind and the Holy Spirit is pointing you back to grace in Him and faith. Do you hear what we need to do? And when life gets tough, And people start to put all of these expectations on you. Step back 
And go back to the truth of who you are and what Jesus has done for you. Now, where there's sin, you need to repent. You need to repent. Where, where there's lackness, you need to ask for a fire built under you. But there will never be a time when we do not go back to the gospel. Here's the challenge when we live in a complex world is it doesn't need to be complicated. It needs to be simple in what Jesus has done for me. That doesn't mean you don't need to grow in spiritual disciplines. It doesn't mean you don't need to pursue holiness and righteousness. Those are the issues of the moral law. But when it comes to all the other junk that the devil wants to heave on you and lie to you, go back to the gospel. If you really look at how we preach here at Scott's Hill, it's really one sermon with different text and different approaches but it's the gospel. If you're a child of God today and you're confused, go to the gospel. Go back to what Jesus has done for you and then walk in his grace and his faith and you walk in obedience to honor him. If you're not a believer here today, maybe you're not a believer because you're thinking about all the heaviness and the things that you have to do to be a Christian and the inability for you to be able to do those. You're right, you will never be able to do them. But Jesus in you will change you. And he will give you a life that you need in him. Go to Jesus and let him transform your life for his glory. So when it comes to the simplicity of the gospel, let's not complicate it and do the things that God has never desired that we do. And die to your own rights and privileges for the sake of honoring one another. For in that is the measure of the gospel lived out. And a community that understands covenantal love for one another. As I told you, this sermon was pointless today. But the two questions that we need to answer have been answered for us in the pages of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ came, took on humanity, lived a perfect, sinless life, falsely accused, sentenced to death, crucified, buried, and rose on the third day. And that he is alive today, seated at your right hand, ever interceding for us. And Father, may we not complicate the things that Jesus has done for us. But even in the complexities of those, that we walk in simplicity of his love for us and our love for him. And Father, that we are in a covenant with him, that we are also in a covenant with one another. And that we walk in obedience in these measures. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. 
If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it onto your social media stories. Whatever you want to do, just make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Until next time.